Hello and welcome back to the first episode of the second season. Um, thank you so much for your patience and I know a lot of you guys were anticipating this second season and it's finally here and this is a really exciting first episode and I know a lot of you guys are excited but before I jump right in I'm going to go over some quick changes that come with this second season of the podcast. Um, obviously besides the new intro music which I hope you guys like a little bit more than the repetitive intro I had in the old one. Um, but one of the crucial changes this season is that instead of uploading an episode every week, I'm going to be changing that to an episode every other week. Um, one of my goals in this second season is to have higher quality guests, which allows me to focus on other things and not stress so much about finding someone really, really fast. I know that during the summer, sometimes I would pump out an episode and then I have a week left to find someone else and then record another episode and then publish it. So this making episodes every other week just gives me more breathing room to find higher quality guests and reach out to them while also balancing school and uh, test preps. Um, the second change is that instead of limiting myself exclusively to technical speech and debate content, I'm going to be expanding myself a little bit more to new, new boundaries so that I can reach new horizons. And I think you can kind of tell from this first episode, which is with Michael Ferris, and it's not specifically a tutorial on how to become better at moot court, but just a general episode on moot court or forensics and how that prepares you for law. And um, I really just wanted to do this to expand the, the conversations that I'm having so that I can also have more episode ideas and just have generally more entertaining more insightful episodes that you guys can learn because ultimately being able to learn the technical stuff of speech and debate is something that you can obtain from going to club or reading articles online from debate guides that's not something i want this podcast to be and so i'm going to try to culminate more higher quality conversations with people with other guests and that's a reason why i'm extending the limitation of what this podcast is going to be of course, this podcast will still be directed um, towards you guys, speech invaders, and uh, I hope you still have a lot of growth from this podcast. Um, another thing is that there's going to be a two to three minute survey that you can fill out in the description of this podcast. If you could do that, that would be absolutely wonderful. Hello, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm joined with Michael Ferris. Michael Ferris is a constitutional lawyer who has argued before the appellate courts of 13 states, eight federal circuit courts of appeal, and the U.S. Supreme Court. He was an executive committee member of the Coalition for the Free Exercise of Religion and successfully lobbied Congress for the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. He has authored over 15 books, as well as founded or helped found the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, Patrick Henry College, Generation Joshua and NCFCA. And recently in 2022, he stepped down from his position as president and CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom. He has 10 children and 30 grandchildren. For today's episode, we're going to discuss how forensics will prepare you for law. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Ferris. It's great to be with you, Luke. I'm really happy to be with you and think the world of uh, the homeschool debate programs, especially NCFCA. Awesome. Well, I first found out about your connection with NCFCA through the, the keynote that you did at the Nationals Award Ceremony just this June. 
Um, before that, or just recently, I was looking online for bios of your accomplishment uh, to put that little bio I just read. And nowhere did I really find that you had any connection with MCFCA. So is that something that has kind of been kept quiet that you just announced recently or what, what's behind that? Well, my bio usually gives the places I've worked. Um, and so um, things I started don't necessarily get on out. Like, for example, you won't see anything about Blue Ridge Bible Church. Uh, I started Blue Ridge Bible Church and I was the uh, pastor, but I was a volunteer. I, 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 it wasn't my job. Um, and so um, it's a good idea. I could I could put that down, but I, you know, it's long enough to read as it is. And so, you know, but I'm very, very, very proud of NCFCA. Uh, and I would say that um, it wins, of all the things I've started, and I've started a lot of things, um, it wins the, the record for the highest amount of achievement with the lowest amount of my personal work. Uh, and so from an efficiency of work uh, perspective, it's the best thing I've ever done. And, and it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done, period. And uh, so I'm very, very proud of what NCFC has become. And um, I mean, my role was a little more than this, but it was basically, um, I had the idea and I hired my daughter, Christy, uh, as her summer job when she was a student at Cedarville University uh, to start what became NCFC. It was homeschool, uh, HSL deba debate league before that. Uh, and, and so uh, Christy Scheip now, who is the, I guess she's the board chairman of NCFCA. She's either that or the vice chairman, one of those two. But she's on the board of NCFCA, and she emceed a lot of the events there at, at the at, at the tournament. So it was a great it was a great thing. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about how the idea emerged. So, what exactly happened before your idea for NCFCA uh, that actually made you want to put it in place, or what sort of value do you see in it? Well, um, I was involved in high school debate, in college debate, and then uh, I didn't do particularly well because I didn't work hard. Um, but then I, I, I got into moot court in law school, and I worked hard in uh, our, our school. We had a uh, intramural tournament. It was a, you know, a lot of people participated. And I, my partner and I uh, won the championship beating, among others, a former, a future governor of the state of Washington, Christine Gregoire, and and uh, my partner became eventually became the state bar president. So it was a pretty illustrious group, but but we won the, won the championship in my, in my third year of law school. And so um, I loved debate. I loved forensics. And uh, I insisted um, that Christie try forensics at Cedarville when she was there. And um, and so she did, and, and she was very, very good. And so it was kind of the opportunity of me loving forensics, wanting to see homeschoolers have an opportunity to do that, and having a daughter who had been involved in a very successful Christian forensics program uh, at Cedarville that was not uh, engaged in the fast-talking kinds of leaks. I, 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 I don't think that those things are very good if, unless you want to train to be a person who reads the final disclaimers on a car insurance commercial. Uh, if you want to do that, then go go sign up with, for normal speed and spread debate. But um, but Cedarville's program, and I'm sorry, I'm here in Washington D.C. right now. And you're hearing the sirens go by. Um, but uh, uh, anyhow, the um, um, 
you know, it was an opportunity. It was, it was the confluence of me seeing a need and an opportunity to start something for homeschoolers and my daughter having the knowledge to do it. And so HSLDA had some extra funds that we devoted to starting the league. And she consulted with uh, Debbie Haffey, who was the Cedarville debate coach at the time. So, you know, it was Christy a lot, but Debbie Haffey a lot and me a little bit. They really got the thing going. Um, and so, um, and the value is, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of um, kids have been through this program and it's helped people in all kinds of fields of life. And I've met people, the, you know, I've met a person who's a very high-ranking economist in Washington, D.C., gotten started in CFCA. Um, um, uh, a number of lawyers that I know got their start in CFCA. Um, and so um, it's, and, and it's not just law or public policy or it's, you know, people have benefited from this in a number of walks of life. And so it's, um, um, I, I think it's just a, an amazing, very successful program. I'm just wowed when I see the students at, at national finals. I've been to a lot of them. Uh, there was a while that I judged every single national finals for like, I don't know, the first 10 or 12 years or something. Um, but I, I've been back and forth in the last few years, but I was honored to be able to go back and, and, and judge again this year. Yeah. You mentioned that you participated in college for Newport and also some forensics. Would you say that that participation had an impact on your career? Oh, there's no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. Um, I mean, one funny story is that um, I was defending a... Uh, a member of the uh, Navy who was being court-martialed for going around officers' housing at the Whidbey Island Naval Air Station in Washington State. And uh, he was passing out flyers inviting people to church. And um, there was a rule about no passing out any flyers of any kind in the, in, in the area, but they ignored it. Uh, the Boy Scouts passed out stuff all the time and the Campfire Girls and all kinds of people. Uh, you know, any nonprofit was basically allowed to pass out flyers. But when he passed out church flyers, he was arrested and being court-martialed. And so I prepared a, a brief arguing uh, his case and showed up for the trial. And um, the prosecutor, the JAG officer, walked in. I handed him my thick brief, and we look at each other. And I said, Chris? And he said, Mike? And he was my college debate partner. Uh, and so he said, uh, he asked the judge for a, a recess because he knew that I would know what I was talking about on the Constitution. And so he um, he took a recess and went and read my brief and came back and dismissed the case because he knew I was right. And so uh, so that was one small dividend, but uh, um, uh, especially moot court has helped me so much. And of course, I coached the moot court team at Patrick Henry College. This had a reasonable amount of success. While I was there, we won 12 national champions, championships and one world championship. And so that was, you know, that's decent. Uh, no other college has ever won more than, well, no, one other college has won two and nobody else has ever won more than one. Um, and so Cal State Long Beach has won two and Patrick Henry has won 12, no, actually 13 now. But uh, I, I helped, I coached or uh, 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 12 of those championships. And my, and my first national champion is now the coach, and uh, and so you know, kind of my 
my moot court son, if you will, Peter Kamakaviva Ole. He's now the coach, and he won his first national championship this year. Now, what would you say, you mentioned PHC, what would you say was your mission when you found that? And do you think that one of the missions is to uh, have a really good new team or is having a really good new team the side effect of a different mission that you had in founding PHC? Well, I didn't know that there was an undergraduate moot court competition when I started PHC. In fact, the league didn't exist. Um, in the first semester of the college, there was a letter circulated to various colleges, including Patrick Henry. I don't know how we got on the list, um, saying that there was a, a, a moot court tournament starting that January. So uh, the moot court national program started the same year that Patrick Henry started. And I had no idea. Uh, so um, certainly wasn't a plan. No, we, we did, um, we were planning to do debate. So that was a, that was a planned thing from day one. Moot Court was um, something about 90 days in, we learned about it. And, uh, and so we just quickly added it, found it to, the, to the program. But um, there is a huge participation level uh, in forensics at Patrick Henry. Uh, Moot Court, uh, mock trial, various forms of debate, model UN, and it's not exactly a debate, a debate program, but it's similar in that is uh, there is a case presentation in business. That's a, there's an a, a, a international championship, and um, Patrick Henry took second in the world this year in that. Uh, went to Brussels and got second in the world. So, um, so that, you know, that forensic spirit, the, the presentation ability was applied to the business context. Um, and I think of the three-member team, I think there was only one person who was actually on one of our forensics teams. Um, but um, anyhow, it, it, it's, it is a big part of PhD's life, and there's a, probably a quarter of the student body participates in some form of, of forensics. So it's, yeah. uh, it's huge. That's excellent. Um, and you yourself have appeared before the Supreme Court a number of times. And of those times that you have appeared, what was your preparation process like? Well, it's true that I've argued a number of cases in the Supreme Court, as long as you remember that two is a number. Uh, and so uh, I've argued two cases in the Supreme Court, and uh, they were 32 years apart. Uh, and my preparation was entirely different those two times. The first time... Uh, was in, I can look on the wall and see. Um, no, I can't. Wrong office. I've got, oh, no, there it is. There's my, uh, I'll be right back. There's my little R.E. <laughs> uh, November, November 6, 1985, was the first oral argument. And the second oral argument uh, was um, March 20th, 2018. So um, that is a 32-year approximately difference uh, between my first and second oral argument. The first time I had handled the case from the very beginning, um, uh, you know, the case started in a, um, an administrative hearing officer in a back room in an old office building in Spokane, Washington, linoleum floor, and then we went to the Superior Court, Washington State of Front Judge Marcus Kelly, and then I, then I got... We skipped the Court of Appeals and went straight to the Washington Supreme Court. And um, the um, 
And then I went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, interestingly, I lived in the town the case was in at every stage. Um, so when it was in the Washington State Supreme Court, I just moved to Olympia. And when it was in the U.S. Supreme Court, I just had moved to the D.C. area. I was living in Virginia, but in the D.C. area. Um, and so I walked in and argued. I didn't really, I don't, I don't think I did any moot courts. I mean, my, my co-counsel and I, you know, we wrote the brief, you know, I, I was up on it and I was kind of just, I, I'd argued a number of appeals in other appellate, you know, state Supreme Courts and so on at this point, probably, you know, 10 or 15 cases, something like that uh, in, a, in an appellate context. So I just walked in basically confident and, uh, um, we won unanimously, but I would not recommend that that form of preparation to anybody. Um, the second time in 2018, I'm now the president of Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF goes before the Supreme Court regularly, so its preparation program is intense. I spent half my time for the second month prior to the argument preparing for the argument. And the last month before the argument, I spent 100% of my time preparing for argument. And, and so it was, you know, eight weeks of preparation. Uh, I did 11 external courts. I went to Stanford Law School, uh, Cal State Long Beach, which was my friend in the, in the, homes, in the uh, undergraduate collegiate court program. Uh, went to Georgetown Law School, Catholic University, Heritage Foundation, Lots of different others. The Attorney General's Office of Arizona did, did a moot court for me, uh, headed by one of my former moot court students who uh, uh, moot courted against Oxford University and beat them. He was now a Deputy Attorney General of Arizona. Uh, and um, a bunch of others. The final one was at Patrick Henry College in front of nine of my former students, including uh, the, the Chief Justice of that panel was is Lindsay C., who is currently the Solicitor General of West Virginia which is the top appellate lawyer for the state of West Virginia. She's argued two Supreme Court cases herself now. And her second one, she won one of the biggest victories in the last couple of years. And then it's the EPA case that had the major questions doctrine that basically says uh, when there are major rules in regulating our economy, Congress has to pass them, not the, not the bureaucracy. So it was a very big case, and Lindsay argued won that case. And so... My nine students, former students, all lawyers now, grilled me, and uh, um, and so and with my own team at ADF, I probably did at least a hundred moot court rounds uh, in preparation. So uh, to say that I was prepared in depth was the understatement of the century, and there was there was not a single question I was asked that I had not thoroughly prepared for. Um, so um, it was. It was, and we we won five to four, um, and so. Um, but the key thing is we won. So, right. Yeah. So do you think that the skills that you gained, or the the study that you put in in preparation for for appearing before the Supreme Court, do uh, you think that the moves that you did definitely helped you for the Supreme Court? And also, on a separate note, would move for in general help with a legal career? Well, it definitely helped me um, without any doubt because uh, one of the things that we did is um, if I got asked a question and I didn't like my answer or if somebody else in the room didn't like my answer, 
I would have to do it again. And I would keep having to do it again until we all thought that the answer was right. I wasn't memorizing anything um, because memorization is not helpful as a presentation skill. But I was remembering concepts. I'd have, you know, if I get asked this question, I have two bullet points in my head. Um, You know, I'm going to say this and then this. Not memorized, but I know exactly where I'm going on anything and everything. And so, um, so every single question that I got asked was one that we had prepared for thoroughly. Um, the other side couldn't say that because they got asked questions clearly they had not asked, been asked before. Um, and, it, you know, it, it worked out. You know, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, oral advocacy rarely wins a case. You can lose a case. Uh, as an oral advocate at the Supreme Court, because the court, you know, they're they're deciding it based on their judicial philosophy, uh, um, plus the facts. And an oral advocate, you know, is there to help hand the judges who uh, agree with his or her position, hand them arguments and facts that help them get to the result that you want. But uh, I've seen people mess up cases. But um, so doing a good job is important, but it's mainly uh, the cases are decided mainly on the briefs. Um, but the oral advocacy skill is essential to, to getting the final level of, of the victory. And yeah, uh, I mean, for one thing, if anybody ever runs for office, um, just for starters, a pr- or anybody that ever has to do a press conference, a press conference is... Um, Exactly what McCord is. You know, it's debate with live questioning. And and so, um, in fact, one of the most successful mooters that I had um, is in the intelligence field. And he has risen very fast, very high in the, in the intelligence community because he knows how to stand in front of a group and answer questions um, and, and, and do it with professionalism, with confidence, and with a conversational style, uh, where you're, you know, you're listening to the question, you know, you're not there to make a speech. The, your speech, your ideas, your point, they're not that important. It's the judge's questions that are important. That's, you know, I, when I teach with court, I say, that is your raison d'etre, your reason for existence. Um, and, and so um, when, when you know that, when you're so in tune with the judge's questions, you're in a, you know, just a regular work situation, when your boss is asking you questions, you're not thinking, well, what do I want to tell my boss? You're, you're thinking, how can I meet my boss's needs? He, he's asking questions. She's asking questions. Um, how do I give them the information they want that helps them make the decision that you would, I would suggest that they make? And so that ability to reason and to make presentation is applicable in almost any sphere you want. It would help me be, be a better pastor, um, it probably help you with marriage communication skills as long as you didn't take the winning part too seriously uh, and just learning you know, how to have a conversation with people because what moot court is conversational. And so, yeah. So moot court helps prepare people to have good conversations, being able to answer questions effectively in the same way that, say, debate helps people instruct and respond to our... I think that that's right. I mean, there, there's... There's constructing and responding to arguments as well in court. 
But uh, so it's debate plus the conversational style. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the key difference for debaters is sometimes they, they're, they're, they're more interested in their, um, you know, getting their speech out. And you have to convert them into being a quarter. The, the debate skills help enormously, but especially if you come through the NCFCA kind of program. Um, but if you were to kind of speed and spread, then not so much. Um, but but NCA, NCFCA kind of preparation is a tremendous help uh, for anybody. So, so you know, what, it's, what would you say sets apart a good meter in terms of presentation, but also in preparation beforehand? Well, um, there's no substitute for knowing what you're talking about. Um, and so, um, I, um, I, I think that the, the ability to understand what the, what the, the judge is asking you and, you know, if they're asking you a factual question, give them a factual answer. Um, and you have to know the record and, you know, it's ideal if you know the page number and such, you know, something appears on the record. Uh, now, the way we did it at Patrick Henry is um, when they go up to argue, when they walk in the room, they don't bring anything with them. No paper, no notes, nothing. Um, they It is all from entirely in their head. And so they've got everything in their head. They know all the cases in their head. They know all the facts in their head. They know what page number certain facts appear. It's all in their head. And the preparation to do that is a lot, hundreds of hours to be able to do that. Uh, and and so um, now when I really argued in the Supreme Court, I took a few notes up with me. I didn't really use them hardly at all. Um, uh, there was one reference to a particular page number of a amicus brief that became relevant, and I did take just the note of that page number up with me. And so um, so that helped. I did have that one piece of paper with me. But um, so... Knowing what you're doing, knowing the cases, knowing the facts, knowing your arguments, you've got to know what you're talking about. Um, and so, and the other thing is, is that um, uh, what I, te- what I, um, his, his rebuttal is very uh, underappreciated part of it. And, and I think to some degree this is true about um, homeschool debate. But it's more true about NCFC and Moot Court, and that uh, I think a lot of rebuttal time gets misused, you know, is wasted. You don't want to just get up there and repeat your arguments. You need to listen to the judges and listen to the interaction, and you think, what, do, what, two, one or two things do I need to address so I can go get their votes? Uh, and it's it's usually not a summary of what happened. So when I last argued in the Supreme Court, um, there were three things I wanted to address. Uh, Justice Kagan asked a question where the, the Solicitor General of California, the Deputy Solicitor General, just either didn't know what he was talking about or, or just misled the court, one or the other. And either way, I knew the facts. I knew where the facts appeared on the record, and it was devastating to, to one of the things he said. And Justice Kagan had asked them the question. So the first thing I do, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, and we have pleased the court, and I say, Justice Kagan, you asked this and this, and the um, deputy solicitor general answered this way, um, but here's the truth, and you know went through that, and it, you know I blew the whole 
in that. And really, you know, it was something that was important to Kagan. I, I was going after Kagan's vote. Um, then uh, the next was Justice Kennedy, um, who had asked a question, and he asked a particular question, and there were facts in the record that were important, so I brought the facts in the record to answer his question. And then the final was Justice Breyer who asked a series of questions, and he, he, this was more philosophical. So I spent the bulk of my time, and you know, and I just turned it one by one. I said, Justice Kagan, Justice uh, Kennedy, Justice Breyer, and I, you know, and I addressed them individually and went right, you know, in depth to their to their particular question because I was gathering votes. I was ignoring Sotomayor because I knew she wasn't going to vote for you no matter what happened. Um, I was ignoring. Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, because I was pretty confident they were going to vote no matter what happened. I was going for votes. Um, and of those three votes, I needed one of those three, and I got Justice Kennedy's vote. Um, and and so um, I, I think that, you know, listening to the round, seeing where the holes are, seeing where the opportunities are, and asking yourself, how can I go get those votes? And and then I, I had like two minutes left over. I, I, I said to the Chief Justice, Thank you, and sat down. And uh, there was no point in continuing because all I would do is open up time for soda my ear to jump on me and argue with me. And th- I knew that wouldn't be helpful. So, you know, sometimes yeah. the best thing to do is sit down and shut up. And so I sat down and shut up, and we won. So. Those are great pieces of advice. Uh, and I was wondering, would you see a difference in new law students who do have a background in forensics versus those who do not? Oh yeah, uh, especially if you've done moot court. But but yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, but if you've done moot court, you've effective. You go to law school. You know how to analyze cases. You know how to answer questions in analyze cases. At least from Patrick Henry's experience, and I think this is true generally of people in the legal good law school. You people make law review, which is a huge huge boost to your career. Um, based on how you do the first year of law school. And and so my undergraduate major was effectively constitutional law. It was a political science degree, but most of my classes were in constitutional law. I didn't have moot court, but I had debate. So I had constitutional law and debate, and I went to law school, and I made, I made law review, and I won the moot court championship, so I was one of the top graduates of my law school. Um, and And if you want, you know, and all that is set on track with what happens in your first year. If you can go in knowing your way around those things, know how to read the cases, analyze them, answer questions, you're so far ahead of the other people, you're about a year ahead of them. And they may be just as smart as you, but if you go in with all that experience, you're, you know, you're going to make law review. In fact, there was one time, I, I, I can't say this has always been true, but at least one time, there were seven students from Patrick Henry at Harvard, and all seven of them were on one of the law reviews there. There's, you know, there's two or three law reviews. Well, there's more than that, but there's two or three main law reviews at Harvard, and all of them were on one of the main law reviews. And so, um, it's just, it, it is a tremendous head start. Well, I've been thinking about this a little recently, and uh, I was thinking about how speakers, or I guess lawyers in general, um, how they would prepare themselves to speak orally without having the traditional forensics competition type education. Uh, would you say that in order to become a successful lawyer, it's incredibly important to have some sort of background in forensics? And to those who don't have that, 
it's not the case for those who do have that type of background. What type of route do you think they would take in order for becoming a good lawyer? Well, first of all, there's only a subset of lawyers who find themselves standing in front of a, a courtroom a lot. Um, and so it's not everybody. There, there are a lot of people who do contracts and transactional law and um, you know various kinds of business law and, and there's nonprofit tax and there's lobbying and there's there's all kinds of you know lots of different law jobs. Um, but among those who do stand in front of a judge, um, whether that's a trial or an appellate court, um, uh, you've got to learn how to do this somehow, sometime. You know, and if you learned how to do it in high school and college, you're going to get good faster than the people that have to learn it on the job. Uh, and, and so um, it, it gives you an advantage. It's not impossible to learn. And some people just have some natural talent in this area. Um, and, and, and so, but um, the last time I argued um, in a state appellate court was in front of the Supreme Court in Nebraska. Um, and this would have been probably yeah, three years before my U.S. Supreme Court argument. Um, so something around 2015, something like that. And there were like seven cases on the docket ahead of me. And I would have given all of them except one person an F if they had tried to do what they did in front of, you know, in my new court class. They were terrible. It was absolutely terrible. The, va the vast majority of people who are doing state Supreme Court arguments have no business being in the courtroom. They are awful. Um, they couldn't answer questions. They didn't know the record. They thought they were in a trial court, not an appellate court. They did not know what they were doing. Um, the only person that I would, you know, said beside, besides me, I thought I did really, really well. And uh, the court will for me. And I was clearly far more confident and, and conversational with the judges. And, and you know, they, the quality of the interaction went way up because they knew they were talking to somebody now who's an experienced appellate litigator. Um, the deputy attorney general of Nebraska, I would have given her a C plus, but uh, she wasn't very good. But, you know, at least I wouldn't have kicked her out of the class. Uh, and so... Um, and she was the best besides me. And, you know, I'll just leave it to others to decide whether I was an A or not. But I would give myself an A, I think. But uh, but nonetheless, it, it's uh, judges will tell you how horrible most of the appellate court people are. This is not true in the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court is vast majority of time specialists, people who do this more than, you know, a, a lot. And ADF... Um, has argued 15 Supreme Court cases in the last 10 years. We've been counsel a record in 15 cases, won 14 of those 15. And so the Supreme Court knows that if they grant cert, uh, agree to hear a case from ADF, they're going to get a quality presentation. And that's one of the factors that you that helps you get your cases decided because they, they reject 99 out of 100 cases. Well, for ADF, they reject um, two out of three, um, which is a tr you know huge improvement uh, in the odds. And sometimes they actually, we, it, it's ever, you know, we get 50% of our cases accepted, but you know, that's, you know, way, 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 way more 
than the average. And so it's, um, you know, whatever it is, you know, even if it's a third, that's 33 times more likely than the average lawyer because it's 1% of the cases get accepted. So anyhow, I know that experience does matter and you got to learn it someplace. And I'd rather you learn it in high school and college than learn it on the job <laughs> where yeah. people's lives are at stake as you're trying to figure out how to do this. Absolutely. Well, as we start wrapping up here, I did have one final question. Um, after all these organizations that you started, uh, I guess it's twofold, you can answer either one, but what is it that drives you in starting all of these different organizations? And the other question uh, could be like, what type of legacy do you want to leave behind after you made quite a name for yourself and also with all of these different organizations that you started and impacted the lives of probably thousands of students? Well, first of all, thank you for the question. It's very kind of you to describe to me um, any success. Uh, I, you know, I think it's important to uh, say something about my roots. I, uh, I'm originally from Timbo, Arkansas. Um, out the out my window here in, in my office in Washington D.C. It's a, not a very crowded street, but I can see in the in the last half hour more people walk down the street than have lived in Timbo the last thirty years. Uh, so it's, it is a tiny town, uh, and uh, um, I, you know, my neither of my grandparents had indoor plumbing until I was older in life, uh, and so one of my grandparents never had a car. Um, I w my dad was the first person for, in his family to graduate from college, and my sister was the next. So none of my cousins, none of my aunts and uncles, uh, at least were before her in, in, in age, and you know n nobody had done that, and I was the second. And so I come from a very, very humble background, and God's allowed me to do some really cool things. And I, I've been blessed to do you know many things that I dreamed about doing when I was your age, frankly. And, and so um, I think the, the, the lesson in my life really is this. If you're faithful in a little thing, God will give you a chance to be faithful in bigger things. Um, and um, I can tell you stories that illustrate that point very clearly. That all I've done really is most of the time in my life I've been faithful. I can't claim perfect faithfulness, but general faithfulness would be a fair statement. And, and so God has blessed all these things. I hope the legacy is that, um, first with my own family, that I have great, no greater love than this than my children are walking in the truth. I, I, my 30th grandchild, so I'm, my wife and I have 10 kids, and uh, I even have my first great-grandchild on the way, and she, uh, who will be born to a, a former NCFCA competitor uh, whose maiden name was um, uh, Emma Scheip, uh, and she's married now, and I forget... Uh, I forget her married name, but her husband seems Riley, but oh, De, uh, De, De Silva. Uh, and so anyhow, um, so I am, you know, at a later stage of life to be sure. Um, but I want my kids and my grandkids to walk in the truth. What I want in the, in the ministry work area of my life, um, the freedom to homeschool um, is something that I, I really had a... Um, a great opportunity to work on that issue a lot. And so making sure that homeschool freedom stays solid 
is is something that I really want to make sure about. But the next thing is I want to see that I've had effect in, in touching people's lives that help them to be more effective servants for Christ. And I think that forensics serves a larger goal of being effective in serving Christ. And if we if we don't keep if we don't blend those two things together, it's just about debate skill. We become arrogant, and arrogant begets pride. And so, if I were to say what what's the downside of NCFCA or, or forensics or even Patrick Henry Moot Court, success can break arrogance, and arrogance was just pride. And so, um, so. Keeping a humble spirit throughout all of this is is essential to real effectiveness. You can have success and it just be ephemeral, but if if you have success that's based on a, hum, a humility that is just simply this, you recognize that God is and you aren't God, and you know that that, that you know that John fifteen five, if you abide in Christ. Um, um, we can accomplish great things. If we don't abide in Christ, you can do nothing. That's the twin truths of John 5. I, I didn't quote the verse. I just talked about its principles. Um, and so um, that's what I hope, is that there are a lot of young people out there who become older people who have an effective uh, career serving Christ in a, a winsome and articulate way. What a great way to conclude. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Ferris. I hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Luke. God bless.